Welcome to Talking With Tech. I'm your host, Rachel Madel, joined as always by Chris Bouguet. Hey, Chris, how are you? I'm all right, Rachel. How are you? Good. I'm super excited to be recording today. You know why? Why? Today is the day. We're wearing our Talking With Tech t-shirts. We have two Talking With Tech lives today. And one of them is with our Patreon, which I'm most excited for because I feel like it's like our super fans. By the time people hear this, it'll be over. You you'll have missed it, but you will be able to get the recording um, up in Patreon eventually. I think we're going to put it up there and then it'll eventually go in the podcast feed. So even if you missed it, that's okay. You'll eventually get to hear it. Exactly. So what's going on with you, Chris? Tell me what's new. I want to tell you about a Greek um, story. Have you ever heard of Pygmalion? Do you know who Pygmalion is? Sounds familiar, but I'm not quite sure. Okay, so there's this um, scientific principle called the Pygmalion effect. And I looked it up. Where does this word Pygmalion come from? And apparently it's a Greek story of this person who uh, maybe was a king and a sculptor. And he created a woman out of... I don't know, ivory or marble or something. I don't know. He, he sculpted this woman. And then the gods, because he wanted it, just wanted this woman to be so real, I guess, bequeathed it to him and made the, the woman come to life because he believed in it so much. And that's why, the, that's why there's this name of this scientific effect called the Pygmalion effect. Have you heard of the Pygmalion effect? I do think I have. Yes. Right. It sounds vaguely familiar, right? Like it's one of those things like, I think I heard about that. So here's what it is and why I'm bringing it up here on our podcast. So the Pygmalion effect is essentially this. It's the idea that the way you treat somebody is the way they will um, respond to how you're treating them. Or if you believe in somebody and though you act in a way that you believe in somebody, they will then they will that will happen. Right. Um, And so a a classic uh, example here is something called the Rosenthal experiment, which is uh, a Dr. Rosenthal took two sets of mice and he put them in with two different uh, groups of grad students. And they add they had to say, okay, time how fast the mice can make it through this maze. The maze was the same. And the mice were the same, like same, you know, type of mice. Um, And the only difference, the only variable was some mice were labeled, these were smart mice, intelligent mice, and other mice were just kind of normal, average mice. And by just having those labels, guess which group of mice performed the tasks faster and better? The smart ones. The smart ones, right? But they weren't smart ones. They're just mice. It was just the fact that the grad students who were with the mice thought that these were smarter mice that they turned out to do better on their performance tests, like getting through the maze. And then this, I don't know all of the exact names of all of the um, experiments, but this has been replicated with students where you'd give students tests and you say, these are the students or these are the ones that, you know, you're, you're um, really good at this task, then you'll be better at that task because I believe in that task. Um, Another classic one I've heard of is the science behind giving kids science like lab coats before going taking a science test. All right, you're putting your your thinking cap on, right? You're putting your science robe on. So as you go in to take the science test, you put on your lab coat and you do better because you think you're a scientist, right? And I bring all of that up because um, if I've, I've been listening back to the podcast and a theme lately, but a theme for always has been 
kind of not believing in the kids, you know what I mean? Not expecting that presuming potential that we always talk about. And sometimes it can feel when we have that conversation about presuming potential, it can feel sort of wishy-washy like, oh, you're just a bleeding heart that thinks that, you know, the kid's going to, but there's actually science behind it and Greek gods apparently behind it, but mostly the science is what I'm caring about. Um, that says if you think that way and treat people that way and act that way, then people respond that way, you know? I and and I think it's so important to remember the power of our minds. And I think that um I, it's actually funny, it's not related to AAC or education at all. Um, but I was listening to this podcast, it was on health, and it was talking about the power of your mind. If you hear a rattling in your closet and you think, oh my goodness, like there's someone in my closet who's going to come out and hurt me. You have a stress response that's triggered, right? Like your stomach, you have a pit in your stomach, you start sweating, you like your heart starts racing all because you had a thought, right? And so it's just a perfect example of how like our thoughts really affect everything that we do. And I feel like it's, it's kind of similar with, you know, the story that you just talked about, Chris, because it's just like the power of believing it's the power of, um, having and holding on to a belief, um, means you're more likely to spread that belief. You're more likely to act in a way that supports that belief. And so it's like, these are the kind of things that we need to be really fostering in, you know, schools and all of the work that we do. Another example, and I wish I had looked up what the, again, the the scientific um, studies here, but along those lines, the power of your mind, I've heard the, the analogy of if you wanted to get better at basketball, and, and you've probably heard me talk about this, it's my least favorite sport and I'm terrible at it, right? But let's say I wanted to get better at shooting baskets, right? Well, one thing I could do is nothing. I don't have to shoot any baskets. Or I could go out and practice every day. And if I went out and practiced every day, I might get better. You know, having someone coach me would even be better. But there is an intermediate step that I think goes between doing nothing and shooting baskets. And that is visualizing myself shooting baskets, you know? And I feel like that is a maybe a part that we're missing when it comes to, or maybe something we can emphasize more when it comes to modeling on a communication device, doing intervention with students who use communication devices is what if we visualized the experience that we want to have? Or if you're a parent at night and you're falling, to, falling asleep, you're laying in bed, you kind of visualize yourself modeling on a communication device, which seems very low stress and very, like, you don't have to do anything but lay there and fantasize about it, you know, uh, visualize what it might be like. Um, and that, just that alone, that power of your mind will help you. Well, I have to tell you, Chris, that when I am faced with something that I find challenging or I think I'm going to be potentially nervous for, and the first thing that came into my mind was, remember, um, right before everything hit with the pandemic, I had that court case that I was on? Yes. So I practice visualization when I have, you know, any type of event where I'm like, oh no, like I'm going to be nervous and this is going to be hard. I sit there and I just imagine me doing awesome. I'm like, what are the things I'm saying? What is the reaction of the crowd or the, you know, whoever's there? Um, And like, even when I present at conferences, I like to go and see what room I'm presenting in. So like I might get there a day early and I'll figure out what room I'm in. I'll just like peek in and I'll be like, oh here's my room cool now I can visualize myself being awesome in this room 
I do the exact same thing. Yeah. Got to go find out where I'm presenting the night before. Yeah. Yeah. And I just feel like it's so important. Um, and it's it's so effective. Like, I feel like if I don't, and, and there's been times where I'm like, oh, like, you know, you just like get busy, like whatever. But if I make an intention to visualize myself you know, succeeding, then I'm more likely going to succeed. Right. And I feel like there's, there's definitely research to support that too. I think visualization is a very strong practice that a lot of people, you know, use to do a variety of things. So I think it's, it's super important to kind of think outside the box a little bit because we don't know how all of these things kind of come together, but we know what not doing them does, right? Like that's what most people, most people are not doing these things. And so we know what that you know, can lead to, uh, but the potential of what else could happen, um, if we start using the power of our mind and just like the belief, I think that there's just so much to be said for fully a hundred percent believing in the students that you work with. Cause I think that's infectious. I think it's contagious. This idea that like, well, yeah, like I do believe that this student can learn how to communicate and this student can learn how to read and can learn how to type. It's such a powerful belief. And when people ask me like, what do you think like has made your practice so successful or like you being a, a good clinician? And I always go back to like, I believe that kids are capable of amazing things. And I will work tirelessly until they do it right until like they show me yes I could do this Um, and it's because of that belief and then it's also because of the hope that I give the parents that I work with because oftentimes they've lost hope that like progress is possible they've been met with a lot of different challenges and practitioners perhaps that maybe didn't believe and so I feel like what I can give them more so than anything is that hope that things will get better and that we can do things um, to move the needle. Now, you keep using that word belief and hope, right? And that's that's exactly what I think we're trying to say here is that that word belief can often feel like um, an antithesis to science. Like, well, I believe in whatever higher power or I don't, you know, but it's a belief and I don't really have any facts to back it up, you know? That what we're trying to say here is there's actually facts, this whole thing, the Pygmalion effect and scientific principles that back up the reason behind presuming potential and that word belief here. They are not opposites, belief and science in this case. They are aligned. I love it. I love it. Chris, what, what's our interview today? Oh, well, wait, before, before we get to the interview, there's something else. I, asked, I have to ask you to visualize and everyone else who's kind of listening right now, if you wouldn't mind visualizing with me, okay? Will you do it with me, Rachel? Can I invite you to visualize with me? Yes. Okay. So if you're listening today to this podcast, visualize yourself later on today participating in a Zoom pre-launch party for the new book. So we're having a Zoom pre-launch party on December 16th at 8 p.m. Eastern time. So what's that? That's five your time? Am I doing the math right? Yes. Right? Um, uh, five Pacific. What the party is, is you can go over to inclusive365.com. There's a uh, banner at the top that says register for the Zoom party. And it's just completely free. It's like we're not, you know, we're the party is free. The book costs money. Um, but the party is just going to be an hour long of, of us and we hope like 500 of our closest friends uh, showing up to celebrate this uh, the, the pre-launch of this new book. We're going to talk about some of uh, the strategies that are in the book, but we're doing it in a very like party fun, let's have fun um, sort of spirit, like because it's a holiday time, right? So I'm going to have my ugly sweater on. I've got a holiday hat that I'm going to wear. We, we've got a whole thing going on and we want 
want you to be a part of it. We want you specifically, Rachel, but of course, everyone listening to come on over and be a part of it because we are really trying to make this book a big, big, big splash in the general ed world. And the way we do that is by getting the word out. I am super excited. Chris, you know, I love a holiday party and I'm excited that we can still have a holiday party, even though we're on opposite coast and we're in the middle of a pandemic. Can't stop us. <laughs> so I will be there. And I hope that all of our listeners will be there too, because I know firsthand how long this book took and how you spent so much time and energy. I saw it. I saw it, you guys. He was very busy and um, I'm super excited that the book is completed and I can't wait to get a copy of it. So I'd love to be there to celebrate with you. And I hope our listeners come too. So you can learn more about the book at inclusive365.com. And right there on that splash page, you'll see a link to say, you know, sign up for the holiday party. But it's 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 happening today, the day this uh, podcast, the what we're recording right now is supposed to air. So you, you might have to be one of the first people that listens and then uh, and jump on over. Speaking of invitations, who else I'd like to invite is Michaela Ball. So I'd love for Michaela to come. And Michaela, that's who our interview is today. It's our second part of our interview with Michaela Ball. So without further ado, let's head into part two of our coaching with Michaela. We're excited to remind everyone about one of our favorite events of the year, the annual ATIA Conference. ATIA stands for the Assistive Technology Industry Association, and like so many events, this year the conference will be held online. The ATIA team has designed the conference in a way that provides attendees more opportunities for flexible scheduling and different registration options. It's going to be awesome. The conference, called ATIA 2021 AT Connected, will be held online January 25th through 28th and February 1st through 4th. The conference will feature the same professional development opportunities we've all come to rely on from ATIA, including an education strand dedicated to AAC, along with CEUs available on more than 150 courses. Plus, there's a ton of flexible scheduling options, so you can attend some sessions live and catch up on others that were recorded. These recordings will be available through June of 2021, so you'll have plenty of time to watch them. This year, there's also a range of registration options, including full conference, single strand, one day, and even a free option. With all of this flexibility and a free registration option, there's absolutely no reason not to attend. Chris and I will be there too. We're leading the course called Designing and Delivering Empowering Experiences to Teach Language Using AAC. This six-hour course is a virtual seminar held over two Saturdays, January 30th and February 6th, both starting at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 Eastern. We've put together an experience that allows you to take a deep dive into AAC. You can register by going to bit.ly backslash TWTATIA21. It's a great example of one of the flexible options you have for ATIA 2021. You can pick and choose the sessions and schedules that work best for you, and you can even take an intensive course like our virtual seminar to really hone in on a topic that matters most to you. And that's not all. Guess what? Talking with Tech listeners can get a special discount when registering for this conference. To get 20% off the full conference registration, go to ataa.org backslash talkingwithtech and enter the discount code ATAA21VISION, all caps. 
So head on over to ATIA.org slash Talking With Tech and enter the registration code ATIA2001VISION today. See you at ATIA. Well, I was, I was going to ask you a question, Michaela, so, so go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, we, since we have um, had new iPads purchased, um, we haven't seen them yet, but I'm hoping maybe we see them next week. And we are, what, since August? We're about two, two and a half months in. Or am I just totally off? Yeah, I think it's been about two and a half months. Um, I guess changing things now versus down the road would be important. Yeah. And like for a kid who has fine motor challenges, like I'm not giving them an iPad mini, like (laughs) we need to maximize like the screen size. And even if that means it's a little heavier and it's not as portable, like for me, it's like, it's really important. Um, so I don't often recommend an iPad mini unless I'm working with a student who has like laser focused fine motor and they're, you know, maybe a little bit older and they don't want it, they want it to be more discreet or portable. But otherwise, like, no. Even if we're saying an early learner, early learners are still learning their fine motor. It's not like he's an expert piano player. Do you know what I mean? Or any kid is at that age. Their fingers are still growing. They're still learning coordination. Any student, you know? So it makes sense to have a little bit larger of an an area. I want to circle back um, because you had said... Wait, before we circle back, I want to stick with fine motor just for a second. Sure. Okay. Um, So hold on to that thought. Along the lines of what Rachel was saying about fine motor exercises, do you know if he has OT and if you could do any sort of joint therapy with with OT? I am not sure about OT. That would be awesome. Um, I know that the SLP, my supervising SLP is usually really on it with being in contact with those outside professionals and... Um, she hasn't mentioned anything. I know that there's no other SLP, so there's no private practice um, for speech. Well, re- regardless if there is or there isn't, stuff you could do, Rachel already sort of gave you one idea about apps that she uses to, um, you know, do finger poking or swiping or things like that. I think there's lots of fun, practical stuff like, you know, poking Play-Doh and uh, doing like putting little paints in Tupperware and cut a hole in the top of the Tupperware. So you have to get your finger into the hole to um, get the paint on it, you know, that kind of stuff that can all help with finger isolation and targeting in a fun, goofy way, you know, tickle this, tell you this, the, the belly of the the bear that I have, you know, and you have to target it. You know, that, that kind of stuff I think can be real fun. Awesome. I'm going to add one more like idea for like a tool. There are these books called Polka Dot. Have you heard of this? Oh, we have those. Yeah. We, they're awesome. I, I, I swear those books have like taught all of my kids how to use their device. <laughs> I'm just funny. like, I just oh, like, I'm awesome. like, listen, parents, like buy this on Amazon and like, we'll be fine in like two weeks. <laughs> Wait, what is it? If we don't, if people are not familiar with the book about books. Okay. I'll explain it. So it's basically this board book and there are these little dots and they're, um, basically you, it's a little circle and you have to isolate your, you know, index finger and you have to push them. And when you push them, it pops kind of like you're, you're popping, um, what is that stuff that you get in packages? Like the little bubble wrap, like kind of like you're popping bubble wrap. So you can work on counting. It's really fun. And my kids love it. Like they love the sound of it. They love it. I even love it. I feel like it's really rewarding. I'm like, okay, I'll keep pushing this. Um, but again, we're working on isolating a finger and, um, pressing, and that can make a huge difference for kids who are just starting to learn fine motor skills. 
now I'm going to circle back um, to what you were saying, Michaela, because I think it's important to talk about. You said something to the effect of, I wanted to give this student more words, but how do I decide which words I give? Right? Was that kind of the sentiment of what you were saying? Yeah. When, when we were trying to see what should be on a home board, um, and it's oh, and we only have an option of 20 cells currently. How do you how do you make those tough decisions? I am going to give you an idea. <laughs> um, I'm going to give you an idea. And um, what is the student motivated by? Like, what are they excited about? Like, what gets them like really pumped? Like, what do they want to talk about? Um, animals, the movie Frozen. He likes jumping, bouncing, uh, sliding, all those physical games. I feel like that's that's what I see in the classroom. Okay. So he what I'm hearing you say is like he likes sensory movement. Yes. He likes animals and he likes what was it? Watching watching YouTube? YouTube channel? Frozen, the movie. Frozen, Frozen. Um, it was watching something. He sounds like every other kid. Every kid I know loves to do that kind of stuff, you know? Right. <laughs> exactly. So then let's think about it. Like what what are some core words that you could use that really hone in on his his passions? Well, we have um, in, on. Uh, we have want. I could see stuff like jump, go. Um, I with If goes there, I'd put stop because I just envision that you can model go, but you can also model stop to then go again. Um, what about for Frozen? Watch. Yeah, I was going to say, what about for Frozen? See or look, I think I'd put. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I feel like those sound like really good places to start. Let me ask you this. Are you doing any kind of targeted intervention with specific core words. I know you're doing a lot of aided language input, which is really important, but are you like focusing on, you know, two words to get more independent use, more independent and spontaneous use, or are you taking the approach of just kind of like modeling language that comes up as it comes up? Um, well, so I started with modeling language as it comes up and then within the classroom, because all of this is all of that I'm doing is in the classroom with um, with him. And then we started sitting down with their small group and their snack time. And then I started modeling want and all done and in and on. We started focusing our targets basically after seeing the activities a couple times to really see what, what we could focus on. Um, we don't, because when he gets pulled out, he focuses on speech. We don't target something outside of the classroom right now. What is he using spontaneously on the device? Um, it was in and on, all done, but I've only seen all done once. How often would you say he's using these words? Like, is it once a day he's starting to use it? Is he using it every routine? Um, once or twice every routine. And spontaneously, like no one's prompting him to say all done. He's just like, I have something to say, all done. I'm not sure. Because we've started the activity. Let's say it's like a small group. We all sit down. We start start the activity. I've modeled a couple of things. Um, whether it's, you know, let's put it on. So we're going to use on. That kind of thing. And then, you know, it takes five minutes or so before he's like, hmm, I'll start exploring. So I'm not sure I would call that totally spontaneous. Because he also is doing what I'm doing. And not doing it first. 
You're right. I wouldn't call it spontaneous either. I think it, that's prompted, you know, even if it's a delay prompt. Okay. That's kind of, that's like, that's my gut. Um, so basically as far as the device goes, nothing is spontaneous yet. So what do you think would be a good motivating word that you can use in a lot of different contexts that he's super excited about to kind of laser, laser in on one specific target? I think go, because you can go to the slide, you can go down the slide, you can go to the next activity, you can go home, you know, just go is awesome. I feel like that's probably where I would start. Go Michaela. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. No, and and go is where I actually start with a lot of emergent communicators using a device because it's so, it's so awesome. You can use it across like so many different settings. Like you could, you could be doing it even like when you're painting and like you could get messy with the paint and say, ready, set, go and stir the paint. I mean, there's literally like a million different ways that you can use that word. So, and, and it sounds like he's really motivated by sensory stuff and he loves like movement. So it's literally like for him specifically, it's a perfect word choice. And I bet with the word go, you can come up with lots of ideas of how you would integrate it, you know, throughout the day. How do you think you could get the teacher to model go throughout the day? Well, I think our biggest trick in the classroom is getting the device near the student or having a dedicated location for it because this is the first device this year. And I I know last year, I don't think they... Even though they tried it, or were starting to use it, I don't know. The classroom doesn't have a lot of kids with devices already. So these are habits that haven't been built yet in the classroom. I think we need to start with that. It's have a dedicated place that it lives so that the student knows to go get it, and it's always in that one spot, or it's with the student. I think we need to start with that. And then um, in two weeks... I'm teaching, I'm supposed to be teaching the paraprofessionals and the teacher about aided language input. So there's that. Is there anyone else in the environment that you could teach? Um, I would love to teach the mom, but I think that would have to be a separate meeting. Um, but yeah, I would, I would love to teach the mom because that's the thing. The, these kiddos right now, they're only at school for part, you know, part of the day. So what are they doing with the rest of their time? Well, perhaps you could record when you're teaching your your team at school. Perhaps you could record it and send it to mom. That's a great idea. Thanks, Rachel. Yeah. Let's maximize. Let's maximize our time. Do you know if one of your administrators will also be in the training? Um, I don't, but actually, usually they're not. This it's this is like a teacher paraeducator um, weekly meet thing that I'm coming in and doing it during. But that would be awesome. What what kind of, uh, which administrators would be the ones I should ask for? Well, um, most schools have a, a, what's called a special ed designee. So they're the person that is the okay. administrator that is the one that sits in the IEP meetings. And they're sort of the ones that are the, uh, for lack of a better words, like in charge of the special ed department in, in their school, right? They're the ones that ultimately okay. th- that answer for it um, and keep everyone compliant and help design the instructions. So I'd be looking for who is that person in my school that might help foster this, you know, um, so the paraprofessionals, you know, see that there's some investment there. Do you know what I mean? That it's not just, oh, who's this person? 
I could see, not knowing these paraprofessionals at all, oh, who's this grad student coming in teaching us this thing? Do you know what I mean? Well, if your administrator is there and is valuing it and asking you, you know, questions and supporting you, it sends a message, you know? Um, and even if not, an email afterwards going, hey, I heard you recorded it, and everyone's copied on the email, you know, because maybe they, logistically they can't be there. Could, could I see that email as well? No, suddenly, again, it's important. Oh, you know, can I see that video as well? So I feel like that sort of is a, it's a very small lift for an administrator to either be there or to ask for it afterwards um, to learn a huge concept. You know what I mean? Like that's super uh, important concept. So that's, that's really smart. What are, what are ways that you can support the teacher to incorporate more aided language input for all of the students? Because I think that oftentimes we have these conversations about specific students, but teachers are really concerned about how they can help all of their students at once. And we know that that visual supports help all students, especially early learners. So what are some ways that you think you can start incorporating kind of a classroom approach to aided language input? Well, I love word of the week. I feel like it's a super... It's a super safe way to start that conversation and not make it overwhelming because it's like, here's this one word. We're going to go over it. We're going to highlight it and we're going to show you where it is in the device. So I love word of the week. Um, And so I'd love to implement a program like that, but I also want to connect it to the curriculum our teachers already have because they've, they've built, you know, they've built what they've done. Um, and they've been doing it for years and ad- adapting it and everything else. So I want—I don't want to say, "Hey, we're going to derail what you're doing." I want to—I want to come in and I want it to feel like a compliment to what they're doing. But what I also want to do is do—and uh, I'm not sure about this idea—but I want to print out um, the student's core board and have it laminated and have it in several locations in the classroom. Great, love that idea. So like for small group there, you know, at their large group when they're sitting on a totally different end of the room. Um, And the cool thing is this classroom, uh, because it is, it's technically a special ed classroom, even though it's a mix of typical kids and special ed, um, you know, kiddos on IEPs. They put everything into visuals. So we, they have a huge visual schedule. They're used to using visuals with everything. So I think this isn't a far-fetched thing to add a visual for language or for a specific word. Where else could you put those visuals? Okay, I've been debating about key rings or like on our cards. I'm afraid they're too little, though. I'm not sure. Yeah. You're talking about putting them in the classroom. Where else do the kids go? Uh, it's right now it's classroom and bathroom and sometimes outside. Gotcha. Do you think they could go on the playground as well? Yeah. I don't know if they'd stay. Um, I think that would have to be a larger conversation with administration to see if they could stay. But I think that's awesome. I've seen where you get the key rings, like you're saying, but they hang up outside in the at the playground knowing they're going to get destroyed you have to re-laminate them they're not a permanent fixture um but that's okay you know they're you print it and re-laminate it you know and you get parent volunteers to maybe uh do that whenever it's necessary or even student volunteers if there's you know kids in the upper grades that want to that's their job you know i got to go out and check the visuals make sure they're you know that kind of stuff oh that's brilliant 
Okay. The other thing that I like to do with parents, um, but I think it could easily be done with teachers, is use visual supports with words that are predictable within that routine. So for example, next to the sink on and off, really low hanging fruit. And then what you could do as, you know, the clinician is take a part of your session and show how you would use it. Cause that's oftentimes like we do all of the great like laminating and printing and all the things and then we hang them up, but we never, we kind of skip the step, the most important step, which is how do you actually use this with kids and facilitate um, this visual support? Um, and so that could be a really good one too, like having go, hanging up at the door. So the teacher can start getting into the habit of saying like, we're going to the bathroom. So it's a visual support for the kids, but it's also for our anybody who's interacting with them. Exactly. And what what you do then is, one, you normalize this, right? You normalize AAC, which I think is really important. Um, if everybody in the class does it, every everyone in the class feels comfortable with it. And it's not, we're not, you know, targeting our, our child who has, you know, communication difficulties and requires AAC. If all his peers are using it and touching it and all of those things, then he feels more accepted and it just, it's, it's normalized in the classroom. Um, and also it's just like getting, it's building the habit. It's building the routine because teachers don't all, always think through the lens of like visual supports, right? How can I represent my language visually for a student? So visual supports are a really great way to do that. And we already do them oftentimes in classrooms of early learners with transition schedules. That's like the visual support that every teacher's got down because they need that visual support in order to get the kids to do all the things that they need them to do. Um, one of my favorite things to do with those visual schedules is very easily you can add the word go to those visual schedules. Like, where are we going to go next? It's time to go to our seat. Let's go to our seat. Um, that's like a really simple kind of low-hanging fruit. Can I ask you a question about that? So let's say we have like a, either a vertical or horizontal, but it's got single single visual cues as to what's happening next. So then would you just put it right next to go and then activity? Go, activity? Well, I, no, not necessarily. It depends on like kind of what it looks like. Also, I've seen them that hang up in the classroom. I've seen kids have individual ones. There's a lot of different variations, but simply having the go icon at the top so that you can touch it when you say go. But it doesn't always have to be like if it's, you know, sand art, it's like maybe we don't go to sand art, we play sand art, but it feels like something where you can, when you could have the potential to use that word go, um, then you just touch it and it's right at the top. What do you think about having the whole core board, like you said, around the environment next to the visual schedule? So you could use go or play or in or any number of those in the combination so you get that repetition with variety. I think that would be awesome. I think the way the classroom's set up, that would work with, because in the front, there's a big visual schedule and there's plenty of room to have a big core board. But in other areas of the room where they have these schedules, there's not so much room. So I don't necessarily think I'd do it over there. But I really like this idea of using a single word because we also have students in the classroom who are at the one and two word level. AAC helps everybody. It's amazing. The other thing that I'll add that I actually just did with a family, this was like a, a month or so ago. They were just having a hard time using 
even a communication board. I was doing the low tech thing and it just, for whatever reason, they just were like, we're not using it. And I'm like, okay, let's focus on one word. Just do one word. And the word was go. And what we did was we, basically I printed out the um, homepage, but what I did was I, 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 I grayed out I did like a light gray on the rest of the board. So it really targeted just that one word. You could still see all the other ones, but that one was highlighted. And then this, this month it's all done. And so we've made these kind of boards where we're like targeting in on one. The other ones are still visible um, as a way to kind of build, build that capacity. Eventually I'm going to transition to like a full communication board, but for whatever reason, this particular case, it, we needed to, we needed to do something that was actually going to work and achievable. And part of it is like trying to kind of troubleshoot and talk with communication partners, whether that be parents or teachers on like, what would work for you? And like, when I, when I mentioned this idea, you know, mom was like, yes, let's do that. And I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm excited that you're excited. <laughs> um, so it's really just having conversations like that with communication partners to figure out what would work for you in your classroom. Can I ask you a specific question about that? Mm -hmm. uh, when you are highlighting those words for the parent, so let's say you're on word one, do you do one word highlighted? Well, you have one word highlighted for your first word. The second word you do, do you keep the first word highlighted? So then you have two words. Yes. And then you have three words the following. Okay. And I found when I've done this in the past, it's not, I don't have to keep doing this forever. This is like a, let's get our, like, our feet wet and like get used to this. And then eventually it's not overwhelming. But what happens is that when sometimes you introduce a core board, everybody is like, whoa, too many words. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. And so that's like a really easy way to just say like, it's okay. Like everyone calm down. <laughs> like we're just gonna focus on go. <laughs> um, and then build off of that. I couldn't agree more. Okay. Let me, can I throw up a word of caution for you? It's a, uh, a, yes. a little imp thing I put on your shoulder and whisper in your ear um, when you're in the classroom. Oftentimes when you're modeling and a, and a teacher has, it's the first time, or like you said, it's kind of new to the teacher, new to the environment, the device becomes, and they learn it, right? You're going to do this training for the paraprofessionals and the teacher and, and possibly an administrator and the parent. It often becomes a beacon, like a bullhorn for the device becomes a bullhorn for the teacher to kind of give, to bark commands at the student. Go out, go in. Um, it becomes, and that pushes the AAC away from the student rather than draws them in. So the imp that I want to put on your shoulder and to watch for is one, for that to happen. And then two, how could, the, what I want the imp to be whispering into, you, into your ear is, uh oh, you spotted it. What can you do? To prevent it you know what can you do to make the student want to say go you know um so for instance i'll just throw one idea out is the whole the whole game of like red light green light you know and especially in social distancing it's like you're far away go and you're moving closer go you're moving closer stop you're too close you know something like that the student controlling adults, the student controlling peers, the the student controlling older students that might have fun playing that game, um, mom and siblings, those are all like easy ways for it to become not about him following the directions. We already know he can do that. He's got a higher receptive language. It's him using it expressively. Okay. That's great to know because I do not have the foresight. <laughs> and I love that, Chris. 
you write me and go, the imp whispered in my ear, Chris. <laughs> I love that, Chris. And the other thing that I like to differentiate, because we, we know that visual supports, they help children learn how to expressively use language. They also help children learn how to receptively understand language and follow directions. So I used to work in preschools when I was first starting off as an SLP and I was using visual supports with everyone. I was like, you know, quiet hands and sit down and all the things. And so one way to differentiate is like the key ring is for when I need you to understand what I'm saying and follow a directive versus the device is these are his words. And if he wouldn't want to say it, we're not going to, you know, either make him try to say it or um, like use the device in that capacity. So teaching communication partners, um, you know, would would the student actually want to say this? Um, I give the example, like I have this client who like kids hated bath time and they're like, we put bath time on the device. And I'm like, um, like, and they're like, yeah, every time we go to the bath, like we hit it and like we make them say it. And I'm like, e, e, e. like, <laughs> no, like unless we're teaching them like no bath, like I'm not interested in like making the device something that they hate and associating it with a demand. Um, it already is a demand when we're tempting and pausing and all these things and expecting communication out of a, a student. But if it's something like sit down or wait, oftentimes I like get a device of a student that I'm working with and I only, you know, see them on a consult basis and I see like waiting on the homepage, like they've added that button and I'm like, do they like to tell people to wait? Because that's something that they like are really interested in. And they're like, no, no, like we say waiting when we want them to wait. I'm like, "Ah." like I'd rather have a visual cue card, something we print out and laminate and have on a key ring that we show for waiting versus have that on the device. That's really good to know. And I really like the physical differentiation because that I feel like that's easy to explain to teachers and impaired professionals and other, you know, other professionals. That's awesome. Slightly different, but also as a physical differentiation is that you mentioned a heavy use of, I'm going to say, linear visual schedules, either horizontal or vertical. Um, But a much lesser known strategy is and I'm going to use the big fancy word here, but you could just say nonlinear, but the big fancy word is amorphous, amorphous visual schedules. And the idea is, is that maybe at the beginning of the year, they have this linear, you know, sort of where we are now, linear, horizontal. But then imagine those same visuals uh, next to the linear or next to the horizontal is a blank one with a Velcro spot on it. And then a field of those same visuals around. And the student, you know, at first it's just the teacher pointing. This is where you're going. This is next. This is next. But then the next step is for the student to rip it off of a piece of Velcro and put it next to them, like almost like a matching activity so that you have this amorphous visual schedule uh, so that the student student now takes ownership of it and they're physically doing it, you know, and then eventually you take the way the the first one, that linear visual schedule, and you you can remove that and they're just, okay. what comes next? And they're just pulling them down, making their own schedule. And in that way, you progress through the year. It's not like we always use this visual schedule. It's we use selectively at the beginning, middle, and end of the year, moving through this progression. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. That's, that's awesome. I see, I see something similar, but it's, uh, it's still a linear schedule in one of the classrooms because they're, they're pulling their schedule off and taking it to where they're going. Um, that's cool. But, yeah. 
Yeah. Well, and it's, it ties the meaning. The other reason I'm bringing that up now is that it ties the meaning to the visual. You know, it's like that's what mm-hmm. that symbol yeah. means. Is it means I go to this thing and that I do this thing. You know, and teaches what this yeah. picture means. So, Mikhail, do you have any other questions? Like, I feel like I definitely want to like kind of like reiterate all the the points that we touched on. But is there any other like thing that is kind of coming up for this student specifically? No, I think my struggle is finding the balance between encouraging the use of sign language and making the classroom uh, a place where um, a speech device is used and demonstrated and it's inviting and, you know, all that. So, Michaela, so I've been, um, yeah, I've been reading Karen Erickson's book, just read the first chapter and a half or so, right? And she's got this great line in there. It's so classic. She says, students will learn what we teach them. <laughs> uh, it's very simple, you know? And yeah, to, to your point about um, trying to decide between the device and, and facilitating the environment of the communication partners and helping train them and understand how to use facilitate the use of the device versus the spending time working on um, sign language uh, versus speech, I feel like this is why I asked the question, where, where the end game, you know, where do you, because you have to choose where you want to spend your time now um, because that what you teach them is what they'll learn, you know? So if you spend most of your time doing sign language, then there's only so many minutes in the day. There's an opportunity cost, you know? It means it's minutes you're not teaching something else. So it's an important decision. I like to think of it at the end. Well, what do I want the student to look like at the end? Because they'll learn what I'm teaching them, you know? Yeah, I think, okay, so to better answer your question, you've you've honed me in a little bit there. Um, I do want to focus on the device because it has the more robust application. I wouldn't discourage the signs, but I definitely would do the language input in the mode of the device based on this kiddo. If the student signed something, you would respond to the sign, but you might also model it on the device so they can he can see it in multiple ways, but you wouldn't demand him to press it on the device. Does that sound fair? Yeah, totally. And that's, I think that's what I need to teach. That's a big key piece of what I need to teach, uh, you know, when I do this little in-service. Yes. No double demands. The the mode doesn't matter. Yeah. It's one of the most important things when you're, you're, because sometimes we work with students who don't have speech and it's like, okay, we have a device. Now they have a voice, but otherwise they don't have much of anything sometimes. But for students who you know, are multi-modality communicators. They're using some some speech. They're using some signs. Um, we always run into the issue of this idea of like a double demand. Like you told me sign, now say it on the device. You know, you said it on the device, now try to say it. Like if we were being told all day long to say things twice, like now say it in Spanish, Rachel, now say it in Mandarin, like we would be so frustrated. And so that's something that I really try to communicate to teams who have students who are multimodality communicators is like, accept what they said, model without expectation. It's, it's as simple as that. Michaela, can I give you one more piece of advice here? As someone yes, who please. has failed many times at training, <laughs> my advice to you at training 
is to keep it small. You're going to see all the stuff, especially as someone who listens to every episode of this podcast very carefully, <laughs> you know, um, you're going to want to, I'm guessing here, you're going to want to, I know I always want to, push, shove too much in at once, you know. It is the hardest skill I, I have had to learn is to be patient and go, oh, God, they need, they need to know so much right now. Pick the one or two salient points that you think will make the biggest impact on the paraprofessionals and then let it go. Like, we'll go just just wash your hands of it or say, hey, when's the next time if you found this was useful? You know, because um, too much if it's an hour, even if it's a half hour, you can cram a lot in there and it won't mean anything. You know, you won't actually see the change, you know. Yeah. Have you, when you do trainings, do you have them practice and kind of coach themselves? Yes. Okay, cool. That's, <laughs> That's what I was thinking would be probably most beneficial. Awesome. Michaela, this was so great. Thank you for coming on and agreeing to let us record. Of course. I mean, of course, we're happy We're happy to help you uh, because you're an amazing part of our team. And if we did not have you, we would not have this podcast. So um, everyone listening, just know that. If it wasn't for Michaela, like you wouldn't hear us every week. It's true. <laughs> well, we're really excited. Keep us posted on how this goes with this student. Um, you know, kind of just to reiterate, like, of course, accept what he's he's already using as far as communication modalities, but then keep building out the device. I love how you're strategizing to figure out how can you can support communication partners with the device, because ultimately that's going to lead to the most systemic change. Um, and then I think kind of getting a little bit more laser focused with the vocabulary that you're choosing. And, um, you know, I'd rather see him use a handful of words spontaneously and independently than, you know, all use, you know, half the device, but have to be prompted in order to say something meaningful. So um, I think really getting strategic about the vocabulary and doing the, you know, word of the week and all those things are going to be really effective strategies. Well, thank you so much for answering all my questions. I really appreciate it. Of course. For Talking With Tech, I'm Rachel Weedle, joined by Chris Bouguet and our special guest, Michaela. Thank you guys so much for listening, and we'll talk to you guys next week. Hello, everyone. We wanted to wish you a bright holiday season this year and let you know that we are going to take the next two weeks off from posting content. So there'll be no new content in the main podcast feed on December 23rd and December 30th. The next content would come out on January 6th or 7th, somewhere around there. So enjoy the holidays. Take this time to rest up and have fun with your family and friends. And we'll see you in the new year. 